looking at this issue of giving offense to other people. Um, specifically, in this situation, it related to uh, eating meat sacrificed to idols, which I know doesn't sound like it would be terribly relevant to us today, but believe it or not, this whole idea of eating meat sacrificed to idols can have some uh, application in our situation, especially in a world like ours where people get so offended so easily by so many different things. And uh, I think that oftentimes today, rather than being concerned about whether we're offending someone, we simply follow our particular tribe, our particular group, and you know, think that everybody else is, they're foolish, they're stupid, they're morons, they don't know what they're talking about, you know, they need to catch up, whatever. And um, if we're going to be people who are uh, gonna communicate the good news about Jesus, then obviously we can't just be out there offending people. Now, people will be offended by the Bible, they'll be offended by those uh, those morals that are taught in the Bible. But um, that is, as I always say, their response is not our responsibility. My responsibility is to be Jesus to people, to try to be Christ-like to people. And even when you present a hard truth to someone, um, you're going to present it in a way that um, doesn't, get your personality uh, in the way, interfering with, uh, with what the, that, uh, those people might be uh, dealing with. And I bet you can think of some things that uh, other people are offended by. I remember I was in youth ministry back in the 90s, right? So you can see I've got a white beard, so it's been a while since I work with teenagers. Um, but I really enjoyed working with teenagers back in the 90s and up until we started this church. And uh, I remember that the two of the hot button topics back then were tattoos and piercings, right? You know, should you, you know, because it was just very popular, and I guess it still is to a degree, you know, to get all these piercings. I mean, pierce everything, everything was holes in your body and, you know, things and, and, uh, and then tattoos. Tattoos have become just normal now, I think. Not to everyone, but it's more prevalent now. But I remember back then, those were two, uh, two points of, of contention when you had young people in a church full of older people and the older people would be offended uh, if, you know, your young people, well, young people particularly have a, usually an easier time, at least back then, getting piercings than tattoos. But one way or the other, um, Whatever the source of offense might be, I think that you'll find that this passage will help to address whether or not uh, you should determine to, let's go back to the tattoo and piercing issue. Should you get a piercing? Should you get a tattoo? Uh, there seem to be scriptures that would support uh, not doing that. But uh, on the other hand, uh, I think that there are some uh, there's some ways to think about that and look at that that are a little differently. But we're going to look at this passage. And before you read the Bible, you ought to always pray. Um, the verses that I'm going to read will be up here on the screen. But if you want to look at your own copy of Scripture, this is 1 Corinthians chapter 8. But before we get into that, let's pray and ask the Lord to open it up to us. Father, thank you so much for the opportunity to teach your word this evening. Uh, thank you for those that are joining us online right now or who will join us online later. And uh, thank you for those who are, um, are the old hands here this, uh, this evening and those that are joining us that are new. And I pray, Father, that you'll open your word up to all of us and that we'll be receptive to what you have to say. And pray in Jesus' name. Amen. All right, so I'm going to go ahead and read this whole chapter. Now, that might sound daunting, but it's only 13 verses. And we've already taught verses 1 through 6. Tonight, my aim is to finish verses 7 through 13, which gets into the essential point of food sacrifice to idols. So here it is. This is a more um, literal translation. So you have to kind of open your ears and listen real carefully because it's a little more word for word, a little harder to understand than some translations. 
Now concerning food offered to idols, we know that all of us possess knowledge. This knowledge puffs up, but love builds up. If anyone imagined that he knows something, he does not yet know as he ought to know. But if anyone loves God, he's known by God. Therefore, as to the eating of food offered to idols, we know that, quote, an idol has no real existence, unquote, and that there is, quote, no God but one, unquote. For although there may be so-called gods in heaven or on earth, as indeed there are many, quote-unquote, gods and many, quote-unquote, lords, yet for us there is one God, the Father, from whom are all things and for whom we exist, and one Lord Jesus Christ, through whom are all things and through whom we exist. All right, so that's the basis. Paul is saying, no, there are no idols. No, there are no other gods. That's not what we're even talking about here. What we're talking about is what other people think and what you're doing and how that affects what they think. So verse seven, however, not all possess this knowledge, but some through former association with idols eat food as really offered to an idol and their conscience being weak is defiled. Food will not commend us to God. We are no worse off if we do not eat and better off if we do. But take care that this right of yours does not somehow become a stumbling block to the weak. For if anyone sees you who have knowledge eating in an idol's temple, will he not be encouraged if his conscience is weak to eat food offered to idols? And so by your knowledge, this weak person is destroyed, the brother for whom Christ died. Thus sinning against your brothers, uh, sinning against your brothers and wounding their conscience when it is weak. You, okay, let me get this sentence again because it's, it's worded differently than I thought it was going to be. Thus, sinning against your brothers and wounding their conscience when it is weak, you sin against Christ. There it is. Therefore, if food makes my brother stumble, I will never eat meat lest I make my brother stumble. So let's go back to the, the, the first century issue. Um, so, you know, think about your Greek mythology, right? Um, you know, you've got Zeus and Aphrodite and Athena, right? All these gods and goddesses. And they really believed in these gods and goddesses. And they had temples for all of them. Um, there was a, uh, in fact, one of the seven wonders of the ancient world was the temple to um, Artemis in the city of Ephesus. And uh, there was a huge uproar when the Apostle Paul came to Ephesus because he was preaching the gospel and it was so effective that people were turning away from idols and specifically they were not buying the little idols that the craftsmen were making of the goddess uh, Artemis, right? Uh, they believed that, you know, somehow this goddess had, uh, you know, come down from heaven and, and blessed them specifically. And so there was this huge uproar in the city of Ephesus because the Apostle Paul was cutting in on their trade. And so uh, they went into the, uh, the auditorium that they had, the exterior, external auditorium that they had, and they had a riot for about two hours where they did nothing but chant, great is Artemis of the Ephesians, over and over and over again. And uh, Paul wanted to go out and address them. And uh, the other disciples were like, no, don't let him go out there. The crowd will tear him apart, right? So this is an example of giving offense, but you're giving offense to, you know, using the gospel. But let's go back to describing what's going on. So let's say you have uh, the, the temple of Artemis and they would give offerings, right? And so this offering would be, you know, an animal, it would be meat. Well, obviously there's no real goddess Artemis that is going to eat that meat. You're just gonna leave it there and it's just gonna sit there and nothing's gonna happen. So then after, after, after it had been offered, then they would take it off of that altar and they would bring it to the meat market and they would sell it just like all of the other meat. Well, there were two ways of looking at that and this is what the Apostle Paul was trying to address. You just look at it like it's meat. You don't ask any questions, it's just meat. It doesn't matter whether it's been offered in a temple or not been offered in a temple, it's just meat. But then there are those who would come out of idolatry who recognized that it had been offered in a temple and they associated it with that God or that goddess. And therefore, they thought of it the same way Christians think of communion. What is communion, right? It's where we all partake of 
the, the wafer or the bread and the cup, right? The, the juice or the wine. And we celebrate and remember that Jesus uh, gave his body and gave his blood for us on the cross. Well, we do that together. So we participate in the table of the Lord. In fact, um, a couple of chapters from where we are tonight, uh, the Apostle Paul is going to address that and how that particular uh, service that we call communion or sometimes the Lord's Supper was being abused by the Corinthians. I won't get into that right now. What I want to get into is that when everybody partakes of communion, we're all saying, no, we all believe in the Lord Jesus Christ. This is his body. No, it's really bread, but we're remembering that his body was offered for us. This is the blood of the new covenant. That's the new uh, arrangement or agreement between human beings and God, which is given for us. So every time we partake of that, we're joining together in that belief in Jesus Christ. And in fact, that was the Apostle Paul's problem we find in 1 Corinthians 11. We'll discuss that in a couple of months probably. Um, that the people were not paying attention to what they were doing. Now, I don't know if you've ever been to church and partaken of communion, but if you leave your mind wandering and you're not paying attention to what you're doing, it's kind of a dangerous thing in the spiritual because we're supposed to be recognizing that this is the body of Jesus, this is the blood of Jesus, not literally, but we're supposed to be remembering that. And we're supposed to all be doing that together. So somebody that came out of idolatry would see this meat kind of the way a Christian sees communion. They would say, oh no, if we partake of this meat, then we're agreeing with the existence of this idol. Whereas Christians realize that there is no such thing as this idol and this God, and so that's all nonsense. But the Apostle Paul said, be careful. Just because you, you recognize that that goddess or that God is not real, doesn't mean that other people don't think that that God or that goddess is. And when you partake of that, with that knowledge, then you may trip them up. You may make them think that you are sort of a polytheist, that you, that means that you believe in many gods, that you're willing to worship the Lord Jesus Christ and worship Artemis or Aphrodite or Zeus or Apollo. And that was definitely not the case for Christians. In fact, the reason that Christians suffered so much in the first three centuries of Christian, uh, the, the primitive church, is because they refused to participate in idolatry, specifically in emperor worship. So in ancient Rome, a number of the emperors uh, considered themselves gods, and they wanted people to agree with that by offering incense to them, and Christians refused to do it. And the result was many Christians were martyred because they refused even to offer a pinch of incense to the emperor. Um, I would uh, I hazard to a guess, but I think a lot of people today would be willing to give in to that sort of compromise and say, oh, well, it doesn't matter. You know, I'm just gonna get on with my life. Here, here's your incense and go on. But Christians uh, in those first three centuries took that worship very seriously as you should take the worship of the Lord very seriously. There is only one God, uh, as the, the scripture said, and we looked at this extensively last week, so I'm not gonna look at it again, but I wanna read this verse again. For us, there is one God, the Father. Is that true? Yes. Is there one God, the Father? Yes. yes. If you're a Christian, that's your confession. There is one God, the Father, from whom are all things and for whom we exist. That's why you exist. You're not here for yourself. You're not here to make a name for yourself. You're not here to get rich. You exist for the Lord and he has a purpose for you. That's what we talked about last week. And there is one Lord Jesus Christ through whom are all things and through whom we exist. So later the church tried to understand this one God who has manifested himself or shown himself in three persons, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. And there was a term for that called Trinity, Trinitas. And uh, so that term is not found in the Bible, but this idea that God is Father, God is Son, and God is Spirit is, and it's a mystery that we call the Trinity, 
But nonetheless, we're worshiping this one God. We're not worshiping the emperor. We're not worshiping ourselves. I go to the gym every day, except Sunday. And, uh, you know, people just stare at themselves in the mirror, man. And they do. They've got these mirrors. There's this, I have to be careful. I, I really do. I have to be careful. That's why I don't wear my glasses, right? So I have a couple of different strengths of glasses. Like these allow me to see this real clear. You out there are, I can tell who you are. Let's just put it that way. But I got stronger glasses that would let me see like way deep, okay? But uh, I'm at the gym and there's this one guy. He's a young guy, right? He's a young, fit guy. I'm not wearing my glasses, but I can see he's got his headphones on and he just, he looks at himself in the mirror. And he's just into it, man. He's worshiping himself. I just want to, he, he's, you know, I'm, I'm waiting for him to blow kisses to himself in the mirror, you know? Right? Drives me crazy. So I, I know we think, oh, we don't believe in idols and da, da, da. No, you know, you're the idol. I'm the idol. That's what we worship oftentimes. Um, but nonetheless, no, there's no other God. I'm not God. You're not God. There's, there's no human being that is God. God became a human being in Jesus, right? And we worship him. But nonetheless, that's what we establish very firmly. But as he says in verse 7, not all possess this knowledge some through former association. Now, everything the Apostle Paul is writing, he is writing to believers in Jesus. Oftentimes we make a mistake, and I don't want to make the mistake, of assuming that everybody that's listening to me is a believer in the Lord Jesus. But you can learn from this by understanding that this is what uh, the teaching should be for Christians. So whatever a professed Christian, that is a Christian, someone who calls himself a Christian, says they are or says they believe, the scripture is telling us what a Christian is to believe and a Christian is defined here, right? So he is addressing former idolaters, former pagans, largely, because Corinth didn't have that many Jewish folks. It had a whole lot of uh, Gentiles. He says, some through their former associate, association with idols eat food as really offered to an idol and their conscience being weak is defiled. So they may be new believers in Jesus. They've just come away from idolatry and they sit down at a friend's house and this friend is not a Christian and this friend offers them a meal and the meat from the meal, came from the marketplace, and this person tells the new Christian, that was offered to Zeus. What does this new Christian do? Well, if the new Christian eats the meat anyway, it wounds their conscience because they're like, wait a minute, I just came out of that. And here I am eating this meat that is like communion with the temple of Zeus. So what you're gonna find here is going to the, going jumping to the end, the Apostle Paul says, if food makes my brother stumble, I will never eat meat, lest I make my brother stumble. So the point is, I don't just exploit my freedom and say, well, I'm free. I can do whatever I want. It's, it's my life, not your life. But the Apostle Paul was very, very concerned about offending other people's consciences. He wanted people to come freely to the Lord and he wanted them to grow up in their faith and come to these conclusions on their own. And I've said this many times, I go to Intrinsic all the time and uh, I will sit up there at the bar and have conversations with all these different people. And I know that many of them are not professed Christians, right? Um, you know, they've, they've clearly made that known or their language lets me know that whether they would say they're a Christian or not, they're not following Jesus. But I will tell them what I, you know, what I would tell you. I don't change my story, but I say to them all the time, I, we're not here to sell anything. We're not here to shove a Bible down people's throats. We're not here to force people to believe. We offer this opportunity, right? The gospel is good news. And if it's good news, then people are gonna recognize, you know what, that's good. I like that. And they're gonna say, I want that, and I wanna believe that, or not. I think we make a mistake coming out of a time 
Uh, and, you know, sometimes we, we look back at this nostalgically when in this country, the majority of people would have said they're Christians. The majority of people would have said they believed in God. Um, and now we're in a time where that is perhaps not the case. And uh, even though many would still say they're Christians, many would still say they believe in God, their faith is not a biblical faith, right? So, but some people look back nostalgically at this time when most people in this country were Christians. But there were problems then as well, right? Uh, I remember Mr. Vernon, our oldest member of our church, passed away last year, but he and I used to go out to lunch on a regular basis and talk all the time. And I mean, you know, he used to, you know, they lived in the country, they used to just leave their doors unlocked. Can you imagine leaving your doors unlocked? Oh yeah, exactly, you're not gonna leave your doors unlocked. You leave your doors unlocked, you're gonna get robbed. You leave your doors unlocked, you know, somebody's gonna come in. Although, Miss Mary prays for our church all the time, and I have, on a couple of occasions, accidentally left the doors unlocked, and nobody has come in. So, Miss Mary's praying that the angels will protect the building. That and the fact I have the alarm set usually, so one way or the other. Um, but I tell people all the time, trust God and lock your doors. So. During that time when most people were Christians, there was a kind of a legalism, right? This expectation that, no, you will do what we say. You will believe this way. We all think the same way. And I think that that is not in keeping with the gospel where people need to be able to receive that good news for themselves. They need to be able to put their faith in Jesus um, when they're ready to do that. Um, so there are denominations that baptize babies and uh, their hope is, of course, that, you know, they're bringing this child into the kingdom of God. But the reality is, you know, uh, Catholics baptize babies, Episcopalians baptize babies, Presbyterians baptize babies. But the reality is that baby, although you dedicate it to the Lord, has to grow up and get mature and that might be 7, 8, 10, 12, 15, 25, and they have to decide for themselves. I want to put my faith in Jesus. I want to follow Jesus. Um, God doesn't have any grandkids. He just has adopted children. Amen. He has reborn children. You choose to become a child of God yourself. Somebody can't do that for you, right? So with that in mind, um, we may have certain expectations for the way people should conduct them, themselves, right? Amen. We have certain morals and we should uphold those morals. But I can't expect that everybody is going to believe that way, that everybody is going to follow that moral code. I think that we need to have mutual respect for one another as human beings, but I can't expect someone who has not yet come to Jesus to worship the way I worship, to believe the way I believe. And so there's lots of people out there that think all sorts of things. And I'm more than happy to share with them, share the truth of the gospel with them, to share scripture with them. But I don't expect that they're gonna believe what I believe until they come to know who I know. Amen. When you come to know Jesus, then that changes what you think and who you believe, uh, whose word you believe. Right? You believe the word of man? Well, then you got all kinds of strange ideas out there, friends. I mean, there's some weird stuff going on out there. And I'm not going to get into a side eddy over here where, you know, I, I, I offend you because I have picked on something that is, you know, your, your personal pet peeve or whatever. But the reality is there's just a whole lot of folks out there right now that have some beliefs that are not biblical beliefs. So what I have to do is I have to present the gospel and not put myself in a position to offend them, right? So let's talk about food as an example. Um, I think that I can use uh, food as an example here without offending anyone. Um, here's three different ideas. There are those that follow an, what I call an old covenant version of faith. That is, they go into the Old Testament and they look at all of these rules and regulations and laws, and there are 613 of them for you to obey. So if you think you just need to obey the Ten Commandments, that's a good start, but there's 613 of them. And many of them you can't obey because there's no temple anymore. 
and a lot of them related to the temple and service in the temple, right? But that were related to the old way of relating to God, right? Through this old covenant that was offered to the Jewish people. And there are those today um, in various denominations, Seventh-day Adventists are among them, and I point up the street because uh, we once sublet space from the Hispanic Seventh-day Adventist Church up the street, wonderful folks. But they have certain beliefs that, that hang on to various of the dietary laws from the Old Testament. Now, to be honest with you, a lot of them are a whole lot healthier than your standard you know, person that has a, a standard American diet. But this is not about health or unhealth. It's about whether or not I need to keep those dietary laws in order to keep God happy, right? Um, that's the food side. Now, they're called Seventh-day Adventists because they worship on Saturday rather than on Sunday. And they worship on Saturday because that's the Sabbath in the Old Testament, right? So there's a good example. When we were over there, um, we did a dramatic production and they allowed us to rent their space to do this dramatic production. But we were not allowed to do that dramatic production on Friday evening because they believe that the Sabbath starts at sundown on Friday. So because they believed that and it was their facility, we were not allowed to do that. And we didn't give offense. We didn't try to argue with them, right? We simply said that, okay, that's fine. You know, we'll, we'll comply. And then we were not allowed to start preparation for our Saturday performance until the sun had gone down on Saturday because that's when they thought the Sabbath ended. Well, we didn't give offense to our Seventh-day Adventist friends, even though I would disagree with their interpretation of Scripture there, okay? Um, and then the, the dietary side, you know, has to do with, uh, for example, uh, those that adhere to Old Testament dietary standards will not eat shellfish, right? Because the Old Testament dietary uh, ritual law said that you only eat uh, a fish if it has scales, right? So that means you can't eat crab. That means you can't eat shrimp. That means you can't eat crawfish. That's right. That's why you don't have any Seventh-day Adventists in Louisiana, right? Just kidding. I'm sure you do. But nonetheless, um, what do you do when you're interacting with folks like that? Well, you don't give offense. You don't have to get in a big argument and say, I'm right and you're wrong. And these are sincere people, right? Many of these people love Jesus. They love God and they're trying to serve him. So I'm not going to get in a big debate like that. Amen. I'm, you know, I'm going to go my way. They're going to go their way. But, you know, if we go to a restaurant together, I'm not going to sit down and order a big plate of shrimp and eat it in front of them because I know it's going to offend them. Do I have the right to eat shrimp? Yes, I have the right to eat shrimp. Okay, I don't like them that much. They're okay, you know. But nonetheless, I'm not going to give that sort of an offense. All right, here's another example. There are those uh, from this kind of Old Testament faith camp, and there are those uh, from among... Uh, believers in Islam who are very, very opposed to the eating of pork. I mean, they think that eating pork is demonic, man. I mean, be around some of these folks. They think it's just dirty and evil. They just do. And there are even those that are not, you know, from Islam and, they, you know, they're not uh, from that, that Jewish perspective that still think that. So, you know, what happens when I'm around somebody like that? I just say, I got the right to eat pork. Don't tell me what to do. Yes, I have the right to eat pork. And I'm not letting their belief or their conscience to alter that. But if, uh, if we go over here to Intrinsic and sit down, and I've got a, a friend that's a Muslim, or I've got a friend that's Jewish, or I've got a friend that's Seventh-day Adventist or whatever, then I'm going to order the beef, or I'm going to order the chicken, I'm not going to order the pulled pork, right? You go over there on Tuesday and you, you know, get a, a pork, you know, taco or whatever. If I went over there with one of these folks on a Tuesday, then I wouldn't be ordering that because I know that I would be giving offense. I'm trying to help you understand what's behind the argument here. Um, 
The key is to not give offense. Now, it was more significant here because this represented idolatry to them, right? This represented this, this uh, world that they came out of. But you and I need to understand the principle that the Apostle Paul is relating here. Verse eight, food will not commend us to God. We're no worse off if we do not eat and no better off if we do. That's the biblical New Testament principle. You're not worse off if you eat pork. You're not better off if you do. You're not worse off if you eat shellfish. You're not better off if you do. Use any number of other examples that you might use. The point is there is freedom if you are in Christ, but that doesn't mean that I exploit that uh, at the expense of someone else's conscience. Verse nine, but take care that this right of yours did not, does not somehow become a stumbling block to the weak. Now let's get into something more controversial. Um, alcohol. So there are still plenty of Christians that think that drinking alcohol, period, is simply wrong. And there are Christians, and I am one of them, that believes that you can drink alcohol in moderation and be appropriate and uh, you certainly not get drunk or do anything uh, like that. But what happens if you are having fellowship with other Christians who believe that drinking alcohol is wrong? You're, you go to a restaurant. What, do you order a beer? Do you order a glass of wine? Obviously, if you're old enough to do that. Or do you not? You don't. So I go to Intrinsic all the time, and I'm not a big beer aficionado. I don't like, really don't like most beers, honestly. But they have craft beer over there, and I'll have an occasional craft beer over there. And uh, there was a, the National Day of Prayer this year, was at Lavon Drive Baptist Church. Now, I'm familiar enough with their kind of approach to scripture. They're, they're a King James only congregation, which means that even my English Standard Version is not going to be appropriate for their worship. They're going to read the King James. They think that that is really the only version that we need to be paying attention to. We had the National Day of Prayer over there and I was asked to be one of the, the prayers uh, and so I got up there. Here's what I did. I got my King James Bible. In fact, I got my old King James Bible that stated 1961 that my grandma gave my mom and dad when they got married. And the passage of scripture that I read, I read out of my King James Bible. Now, I could have picked whatever translation because it wasn't a Levon Drive Baptist Church worship service. But you know what? I knew there'd be a lot of people there from Levon Drive. And so I told them, I hear y'all are fond of the King James and I brought my, my King James. And they smiled. And I read from the King James. And then when we were done with the National Day of Prayer, uh, we had a, a meal over here at Intrinsic. And I sat down with a bunch of those folks from um, Levon Drive and uh, I can't remember what I ordered. I probably ordered the brisket or something. Did I order a beer? No, I did not, right? Because I'm not going to exploit my freedom at the expense of someone else, right? Now, that's their personal Christian belief, and I don't want to be a stumbling block to them. I don't want them to think that I'm some kind of a, you know, wild out there pagan because I have a beer or something. But on the other hand, I think there's something that is even more closely aligned with this scripture, which is saying, don't wound the conscience of these former pagans. What if I am with somebody who is a, uh, had a formal, form, formerly had a problem with alcohol? Maybe they call themselves an alcoholic, maybe they don't, but they really had a problem with that. Well, I'm not gonna order alcohol. I can tell you that much because it would be a stumbling block. You know, people that formerly had problems with alcohol, even the smell of it is problematic. I remember we used to use um, a, uh, a product for communion in this church that is, it is an alcohol-free wine called Frey, F-R-E, but it tastes like wine. Now, I think it tastes horrible, but nonetheless, we used to use it and I, and I used it because I thought, well, you know, this is kind of 
more like maybe they would have used in the first century. Their, their wine would have been such low alcohol content that you know, you'd have to drink a bottle of it before you felt anything. But nonetheless, uh, you know, that's what we used. But we had uh, a young lady in our church at the time who had had a severe alcohol problem and she'd been clean for a long time. And she said, Pastor, she said, this just, she didn't even drink it. She said, this smells like wine. And she couldn't partake of communion with us. It was a stumbling block. We had another young man that she met in AA that started coming to our church at that time. And I thought, you know what? We're gonna stop using this. If even an occasional person comes in here and they've had an alcohol problem, I'm not gonna be cause for them to fall off the wagon and go back to drinking alcohol because they had communion with us. So now I use Kadem, which is a, uh, a kosher grape product uh, that the Jewish people use for Passover, for example. And so that's been, uh, that's been a, you know, a good direction for us. So what I'm hoping that, that as I'm just throwing all of these examples out there, it's almost like I'm just, I'm throwing stuff at the wall and hoping something will stick, right? You ever, you ever cook spaghetti? You ever cook spaghetti? How do you tell whether the noodles are done? You throw it at the wall. You don't, you don't know that? You throw it at the wall and if it slides down, it's not done. If you throw it at the wall and it sticks, it's done. And you better hurry up and turn the water off and drain it because then it gets mushy and starchy and then it's just nasty, right? Now other people are like, no, you take it out and you cut it and you look and you, dude, I just like throwing it at the wall. I, it's just fun, right? In fact, I had an old apartment that had little pieces of spaghetti stuck to the wall because Every time I would do spaghetti, I just wouldn't even take it off the wall. I was like, it's like art, you know, what do you want? But that's what I feel like I'm doing here. I'm just throwing examples at the wall, hoping something will stick for you and that maybe it'll jar some thinking and you can say, oh, here's an area of my life where I might be giving offense and I don't want to do that. I want to be careful with all of these different things, right? Um, so he goes on, for if anyone sees you who have knowledge eating in an idol's temple, Will he not be encouraged if his weak conscience, uh, if his conscience is weak, excuse me, to eat food offered to idols? That's the perfect way of relating this to a person who has come out of uh, alcohol abuse. And so you're sitting around a table with them and you drink and they're like, you know, especially somebody like me, they're like, oh, well, the pastor's having a beer. Well, I'm gonna have a beer. But the difference is I can have one beer and stop and don't care and walk away. But somebody that's got a problem doesn't want to stop. And so what I tell people when it concerns these sorts of things is if you can't stop, don't start. Amen. If you can't say no, don't say yes. And this applies to anything, by the way, Amen. right? If you can't draw a line that you will not cross, then it's best to abstain altogether or not even get into a situation like that, right? So, um, yeah, you don't want to hurt someone else's conscience. Verse 11, and so by your knowledge, so your knowledge, my knowledge is alcohol abuse is wrong, but alcohol itself is just alcohol, right? That's knowledge. But that's not going to be the same for everybody because people are wired differently. They have different backgrounds. They have different responses to things, okay? Um, I don't want to destroy somebody who is weak. He says, and by your knowledge, verse 11, this weak person is destroyed, the brother for whom Christ died. Thus, sinning against your brothers and wounding their conscience when it is weak, you sin against Christ. That's the real point, right? Jesus said, in that you've done it to the least of these, you've done it to me. Well, the least of these can be a child, the least of these could be an elderly person. It's interesting how we go from being children to being mature adults, but then once people get older and the older they get, they, they become increasingly childlike, don't they? Oftentimes. Miss Mary, you've taken care of elderly people and you've seen that. And we may call that deterioration, but you know, um, we've got to just say, well, this is somebody who is in a weak state and I'm not gonna be in a position where I'm gonna exploit my freedom to hurt their feelings. Okay, here's a good example. I keep throwing spaghetti at the wall. Here's another one. Wearing hats indoors if you're a man. Okay, if you've been in an old school conservative church, 
if you're a woman, you're supposed to wear a head covering. That's why it was, you know, you look at like an old school church and the women will come in these beautiful dresses and they'll have all these different kinds of hats. Now, believe it or not, we're going to get into a passage of scripture that's going to tell you where that comes from. It's 1 Corinthians 11. It's the same chapter that talks about the Lord's Supper. Women wear hats. Men do not. In fact, that extended to, if you're ever around older people, if you're a man and you go indoors, you take your hat off. You don't wear a hat inside. And my friend, you most certainly don't wear a hat in church. Okay, so, you know, I don't think that that is a, a biblical issue. But these folks, these older folks who love God and are very principled, they do. And they take it real seriously. And they will walk up to you and ask you to take your hat off if you're a young man. So again, I told you I was a youth minister for many years. Uh, the congregation I was a youth minister at is uh, right over by Bussey. It's called Freeman Heights. And within the first year that I was there, uh, we used to have church on Sunday morning and then we would have church on Sunday evening. And churches don't even have Sunday night church anymore. But, you know, a lot of the youth would come to Sunday evening church. And one of the youth was sitting, I, I can still remember, so if, if, if the church there is set up like this one, he was sitting right over here. Now they had pews back then, they still do. And he was sitting right over here. And I didn't think twice, he was wearing a baseball cap. And this older gentleman came up to me and he said, one of your youth has a hat on in church. And he looked just like that. He was not happy with that youth and he was less happy with the youth minister who had not hurdled three pews and gone over there and ripped that hat off and stomped on it on the ground. And I looked over, because I hadn't paid attention, and I looked over, that young man's mother also went to church and she knew what you were supposed to do and she was already asking him to take his hat off. And so I turned to the older gentleman and I said, I think it's being taken care of. He was mad that I didn't go take care of it. I am here to tell you, that old man never talked to me another time at church. Never. Out of that one issue. And I would have gone and told the young man, but his mother was already telling, I, I'm just telling you, people get deadly serious about some of these things. They really, really do. And so, you know, you've got you've to understand that. So here I am tonight and I'm wearing, you know, a pair of shorts. That's another thing. That's a big no-no right? You, there's some church, you don't wear shorts in church. Okay. And as I said earlier, if you're a woman, you don't wear pants in church. You see what I'm saying? So we can say, oh, that's a big bunch of nonsense. But am I going to give offense? If the church is largely comprised of older people like that, well, you know what? It's not going to hurt me to not wear shorts. It's not going to hurt me to not wear a hat, right? Ladies, you might think that it's irritating to have to wear a dress all the time, but I would assume if you were going to a church like that regularly, you wouldn't mind that because you were getting benefits from that church that far outweighed your freedom. This is all we're talking about here, right? Verse 13, therefore, if food makes my brother stumble or hats or alcohol, I will never eat meat lest I make my brother stumble. So that's the apostle Paul, man. Now let's get to my final, I threw in a few other examples here, but my final example that I was thinking of relates to those that are vegans. Have you ever met a vegan? I mean, they're very, very serious about it. Even if they're not religious people, even if they're not believers in God or whatnot, they're very, very religious about that particular belief. They will eat absolutely nothing that comes from an animal. Now, vegan and vegetarian are different. I, you may already know this, right? Vegetarian is you just avoid eating meat, but you could still drink milk. Conceivably, some vegetarians will eat eggs, but a vegan won't have anything that comes from an animal at all. No milk, no cheese, no eggs, certainly. Um, a lot of folks from India, are naturally vegan. And uh, I have gone on a vegan fast on a couple of occasions during Lent, 
as a challenge and it was, it's a challenge. Vegetarian, I can do vegetarian. I can do without meat for, you know, 40 days. But vegan, I like my milk, man. I really, and I love cheese. It's really hard, right? But you know what? It's interesting. You, you figure it out and you get used to it. Now, here's something interesting. Um, going on a vegan fast taught me how wonderful Indian food can be. Now, by Indian, I mean continental Indian, the, the continent of India. Um, and it is amazing. Uh, the food, now, it's not all amazing, but you know, all food is like that. Like, I love Mexican food, but I don't like it all. Um, I like barbecue, but I don't like it all. Indian food is amazing. And, and the things that they do without milk, without meat, without eggs is absolutely amazing. So there used to be a hotel that had kind of a, a little uh, Indian restaurant in it that was right up off of 75. And um, it was actually owned and run uh, by continental Indians. And so uh, some friends of mine took me there because I just thought it was a hotel. I didn't know that it had a restaurant. And man, it was amazing. But they told me that they used to go to the Hare Krishna temple and eat. I was like, I don't know if I'm going to go that far. But see, that's an interesting question, right? So if I go and I don't know where it is, but th these friends of mine that took me to this said they have great food at the Hare Krishna temple. And uh, so I thought that might be the best example of whether or not you are causing some sort of an offense, right? So for those of you that don't know, Hare Krishna uh, is uh, a, a God related to kind of often, often seen as a sort of Christ figure uh, in Hinduism. And uh, it is its own religion. It was very popular in the United States for a brief period of time in the late 60s. Um, in fact, the Beatles came out with a, a song uh, that uh, is a song to, or at least George Harrison did, I believe, that is a song dedicated to Hare Krishna. So what happens if I go to a Krishna temple to eat? Well, Hare Krishna is not real. Hare Krishna does not exist. Hare Krishna is a character of fiction. And I know that. But what if I went there with somebody who was formerly a Hare Krishna and they see me eating there and they assume that that is me participating in effectively what is polytheism, right? Now, Indians are polytheists. There's 330 million gods in the Hindu pantheon. And I say Indians, I should say Hindus uh, because there are Indians that are Muslims as well, that are Hindus as well. Pakistan formed when India became independent of Great Britain and the overwhelming majority of uh, Muslims moved to that side. And so you don't have Hindus in Pakistan and you have virtually no Muslims in India. But nonetheless, there are those who are from that continent who are also Muslims. But nonetheless, I should say Hindus. There are 330 million gods in the Hindu pantheon. It's nothing for a Hindu to say that Jesus is God. But they don't believe he's the only God. They believe that he's just a God, another God. And so we have to be very clear. No, Jesus Christ is the one and only son of the one and only God. So if I go to a Krishna temple and I eat there and I claim to be a Christian, they might assume that I just don't have a problem with polytheism. And maybe I'm a polytheist myself. So that would be an interesting test. And I remember when I was with my friends there thinking, I wouldn't, I wouldn't go, I don't believe, and eat at the Krishna temple. Uh, and it, it's not because I, you know, I think I'm gonna get Krishna cooties on me or something like that. It's because I don't wanna give offense, right? I wanna be clear about it. So that might be the best example of that, right? So I hope by all of these examples that I've offered today that you can lay this down alongside your own personal experience and say, all right, are there areas of my life where I'm exploiting my freedom and giving offense to those who are weaker in conscience? Conversely, are there areas where you are saying you're free, but you're just compromising? 
right? You're just living back in the old life and you haven't really fully repented and said, hey, no, I'm full on for Jesus. I'm following Jesus. I'm not following Jesus and. I'm not trying to hang on to my old life, right? I'm not being effectively a polytheist, right? I'm hanging on to my old life and my old beliefs and then I'm trying to follow Jesus. When I turn my back on my old life, that's repentance, right? I'm facing this way, that's the old life, and I turn completely around and face this way, and that's the new life. That's repentance. And I leave that behind me, right? No turning back, no turning back. Uh, there's, a, there's a great hymn that we used to sing. Uh, we used to, back when I was a youth, uh, when I first came to faith in Jesus, I was 16. And man, I wanted to get in on everything. And so I, I went to youth camps and I went to trips and all this other stuff. But I remember there's a song that we used to sing often in a youth context. And the, the song was, I have decided to follow Jesus. I have decided to follow Jesus. No turning back, no turning back. The cross before me and the world behind me, no turning back. That's what it means to follow Jesus. I put it all behind me. If anything is going to offend anybody else, then I certainly don't need it in my life. But you know, if something is going to offend my conscience, then I don't want to have anything to do with it either. So there are other chapters that address this same issue. In fact, we're going to encounter it again in 1 Corinthians 10. But Romans 14 also addresses this issue. And I think that this would be the best place for me to conclude right here. How do you know whether you should do something or not? Should I get a tattoo or no? Should I get a piercing or no? Should I drink a beer or no? How do you know, right? Well, I think there are principles to apply here, but here's verse 23 of Romans 14. But whoever has doubts is condemned if he eats or gets a tattoo or gets a piercing or drinks a beer because the eating is not from faith. And here's the, the phrase I want to just get you to drill into yourself, right? I want this just to, to be right at the front of your mind. Whatever does not proceed from faith is sin. Whatever does not proceed from faith is sin. Drive that into your head. If I can't in good faith in Christ do that, then I don't need to do it at all. Amen? Amen? All right. Well, hopefully that was a blessing to you. And uh, we will be in uh, chapter nine next week. And so we're going to go ahead and end our stream. Thank you guys for joining.